This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to Birmingham and to Aston University, which was founded as a municipal college in the 19th century, has been in its present incarnation for over half a century. We're in the Student Union as the Student Union's guest, a brand new building that only opened earlier this month. The Union seeks to represent the interests of some 15,000 students. Our protagonists today are perfectly fitted to explore the fallout from Theresa May's decision to stand down, as well as any other issue, of course, that comes up. Paul Mason, former television editor for BBC and Channel 4 News, now writer and broadcaster and a critical supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. At the moment, he's going around the country when he's not on this programme, touting his latest book, and it's called Clear, Bright Future. Uh, An ironic title? Not at all. I am very optimistic. Okay. Especially today. <laughs> Gina Miller, an investment manager by profession, hit the headlines when effectively she forced the Prime Minister to get the consent of Parliament before triggering Article 50. She is, has been and is still campaigning to avoid the Brexit Party and Nigel Farage becoming the voice of Britain around the world in the future. Sir Anthony Selden, Vice Chancellor of Buckingham, Buckingham University, and amongst many other things, historian and biographer of the last four Prime Ministers, that is including Theresa May, and that one's due out in the autumn. You're going to, have to do an awful lot of work over the summer, aren't you, to update the political obituary? Well, yes, I, yes, it's, but it's, her life is not over yet, and uh, she could still bounce back. She's just about the only Conservative MP who's not uh, so far declared that they're going to be standing. <laughs> yet. Sherelle Jacob is assistant comment editor, at, comment editor at the Daily Telegraph and a prolific writer on politics, not least than the most recent politics of Westminster. Earlier this year, earlier this week, she said, Mrs May's lack of dignity is extraordinary to behold. Did she, in your mind, restore some of that dignity by the manner of her departure today? In a way, I think that the speech was interesting but if it was racked with emotion, it was also radiant with some of that stubbornness still coming out with the idea that compromise will win out in the end, really implying that her way is the only way. Um, but it was quite a dignified exit, I think. Thank you. That's our panel. And please, to our first question. Uh, Carol Gatehouse, how will history judge Theresa May's premiership? Paul Mason. As a blip, I'm afraid. It was a three-year blip in which Theresa May tried to deliver the undeliverable. She tried to deliver a soft Brexit with a parliament that won't vote for it. Um, I think it is worth saying, it is is good that we see the human in the politicians who serve us in office. You know, she cracked up at the end. That's a very human thing to do. But how many people have cracked up in a DWP interview uh, when their benefits have been stopped? If she had been able to see the human in the people she was uh, supposed to be the public servant of, I'd be more sympathetic of her, uh, for her. She she is the woman who does go down as Home Secretary, is bringing in the so-called hostile environment for illegal immigration. That's what she intended. Unfortunately, illegal immigration is also called refugee, and refugees have a right to claim asylum. We know what that led to, the Windrush scandal. I think it is certain that in every speech she said, and including today, she expressed the desire 
for greater social justice. But, you know, it's not her fault that she decided to... Or rather, it's her fault, but the system she serves is one that can't deliver it. If you're going to bail out the banks, bail out the, uh, the, the com- giant companies like Carillion that go bust, but then let 20,000 people linked to the steel industry go down the tubes, that we know where your priorities are, and I think the priorities of serving the rich and not the poor will be the hallmark of her government, Cameron's government, and the coalition that came before it. Thank you. (laughs) Gina Miller, you obviously came politically up against her big time. Um, How do you think her premiership will be judged? I think uh, when she took over the premiership, she just didn't have the qualities we needed at the time of crisis, when it was such a difficult issue. It's almost, uh, you know, you needed a, a rocket science almost to, to negotiate these um, negotiations on Brexit. But it's, a, you know, in business there's this thing called the Peter Principle, where someone gets um, promoted above their ability. And I think she is in an example of that in politics. But at the same time, I think she wasn't a good... Um, she didn't read people very well. She could have surrounded herself by better advisers. She chose not to listen. There are stories that people would come in from different parts of the cabinet, from consultants, and they, she'd um, sit there, listen to them, and then read from a script. So she just didn't have the personal qualities, I think, to be a leader. Because even if you're not quite of that intellectual magnitude, you can surround yourself with teams and people who enable you to deliver and to be a better leader. And I just don't think she had the personal qualities. I mean, she's called the robot. Um, uh, I just don't think she had either the intellectual, unfortunately, or the personality to do the job that she did. And I also think that um, we haven't seen, we didn't see or have an opportunity to see what she could have done because everything was consumed by Brexit. Um, and, and the men just stood back and let her take the, um, just watched and tried to interfere at all opportunities but never really lent a hand to enable her to be a better Prime Minister. Sherelle Jacobs. I think that Theresa May will go down as the Prime Minister who could not deliver Brexit. I think that the historian Scalpel will quite ruthlessly dissect the mistakes, which range from squandering her majority within 14 months, failing to... Uh, allowing the EU to dominate the narrative over the Irish border, failing to prepare for no deal... And yes, on one level, she is the visionless sort of project manager manager who never really believed in Brexit. But I think what's kind of interesting about her is there's this strange paradox, because I think in some ways she actually overestimated her ability and she was overly optimistic. For example, with the June 2017 election, she thought it would strengthen her hand. Actually, the electorate smelled arrogance and they delivered a stinging slap and the majority was lost. Um, I think that she was overambitious in a weird way with her deal because she thought that because we have a situation now where we opt in with various opt-outs, we could get the reverse in the sense that we could opt out with various opt-ins and the EU was never going to agree to that. Um, I just want to sort of end by... Um, talking about legacy, because I think it's been quite interesting how it's impacted upon her behaviour in recent days and how that will impact upon her legacy. And I think that if power morally corrupts, and I think legacy morally, uh, mentally 
corrodes and it affects people's judgment. And I think that, ironically, the longer that Theresa May stayed in power, in position, the worse her legacy became. The scenes this week of her ramming the sofa up against the door will be forever seared in my mind. I don't know about anyone else's. That, that, as that long presumably as... is metaphorical <laughs> rather than yes, literal. Yes, yeah. yes, but it's, you know, that idea, you know, she's clawing against that final conclusion. She just wouldn't let go. Um, and that, you know, piles on to all of the other images about ripped up load lines and so on. So unfortunately, not a very good legacy. Biographer, soon to be published biographer <laughs> amongst other uh, prime ministers, um, Sir Anthony Selden. She'll be remembered as Britain's second female Prime Minister out of 54 and somebody who came from a humble background, the daughter of a vicar. She will be remembered as somebody who had an appalling legacy. I think the judgment of historians will be very much, could anybody else have done better given that incredibly difficult legacy that she had and much will depend on whether her successor is able to pull out of the hat a deal that gets through parliament if not I think people will look at the premiership in a different way but you know she had four big objectives to get a Brexit deal through parliament secondly to hold the Conservative Party together to hold the union together to strengthen Union with Scotland and Northern Ireland, and finally to, and very deeply inside her, to think about mental health, to think about uh, those parts of the country which had been left behind, were, were, were profound. So you have to say that she hasn't done uh, any of that, or, or, or little that. I mean, clearly she has made some incremental changes. So as a former uh, school teacher, uh, I would say that she would get uh, A star for effort, but uh, something less than an A star for attainment. And finally, she will be remembered for pricking the bubble of Farage's celebration party uh, on Monday, because frankly, uh, having gone now, no one's going to be that interested in the results of the European election. <laughs> I just want one more thing. You've been writing in the last few days about her, and you and you in in your writing you, you describe how she feels. Yeah. Now, how do you? A lot of people ask you, kind of, when, when it's kind of members of the royal family, the royal member of the royal family is feeling is feeling that it's all half of it's made up or you know gossip about someone. How do you know that thing? Do you have very good contacts within Number Ten and around Number Ten and to her, so that you are able to write authoritatively about her? Right. So I'm chair of the new National Archives Trust, which celebrates the 11 million documents that we have in this country and tries to get them all out in the country, but the books I write are based upon in-depth conversations with the people around the Prime Minister. And how does she feel now? She'll be feeling utterly and totally gutted. And I, I agree uh, with Paul that it, it, it was in Shirelle that, that it was, was good, I think, that we can see, not the least from a, somebody who's promoted mental health, that you could see she had feelings. And you rather wish that we could have seen more of those feelings, but she did her best and at great personal cost. And she will be remembered as somebody with dignity and courage and, uh, if not charisma, not charisma, but definitely resilience. She tried her best. Thank you. I'll go back to our questioner, Carol Gatehouse, on this. So I'm just struck by how poisonous the internal political machinations have been shown to be in the process that's led to this position for her. 
Do you, do you have do you have when you, when you heard or saw her departure and the the breaking down? Did you have a sort of sneaking sympathy for her? I think I can see the knives in her back. You saw knives in her back. <coughs> Not for the first time in British politics. Um, if you have thoughts about that, as you surely, surely will, um, any answers, Julian Warwicker will be in the chair. The number is 03 700 100 444. It follows the Saturday broadcast of this question. You can email any.answers at bbc.co.uk. The hashtag for tweeting is BBCAQ, and you can follow us at BBC Politics. To our next, please. John Hopkin, is it right that 125,000 Conservative Party members should choose the next Prime Minister? Uh, the system, the, the relatively modern system, very much changed from the early system, is that the Conservative MPs initially, unless they're all running, but a large number of them, um, will be judging <laughs> who, who, goes, who, who, who are the top two. The top two then go to the constituency parties those 125-odd members, who then decide which of the two becomes the next leader. Um, Cheryl Jacob, is that, a, is that an appropriate way of choosing the next Prime Minister? Well, it's all based on the premise that that Prime Minister will be able to avoid a general election, and I'm not completely convinced that the replacement Theresa May will be able to do that for too long, not least because the only way that the Tories can now overcome the stop the juggernaut that is Nigel Farage is to get behind a strong no-deal Brexit and of course that runs the risk of the Remainer MPs in the Tory party resigning the whip which could bring about a general election so that would be very interesting to see but in terms of the appropriateness of um, you know now on that, just stick with that, really, you have your ear quite close to the ground mm-hmm. we know that there are 30 odd uh, people who have demonstrated their commitment to the view mm. that, for instance, that Britain should remain in mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the customs union and an overwhelming majority of Parliament is against a no deal. Do you sense that a significant number of those people, if it is a hard-line Brexiteer, whether it's mm-hmm. Johnson or anyone else, would say, up with this, we are not going to put and, and we will therefore surrender the whip? I've wondered whether some of them are bluffing but I think some of them are going to lose their seats anyway in the next election so I actually wouldn't put it past them actually resigning the whip um, before that happens so I actually think it's a very real possibility that we could be going into sort of an autumn or yeah something uh, general election around the autumn. Then to continue your, what, what, what you're saying about the, 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 the principle it does mean doesn't it it's a very small number of individuals yes. who are then saying this is Britain's Prime Minister in the absence of a general election. Yes, but that's, I mean, I mean that's just the quirk of history, unfortunately. I, it's, I cannot pretend that that is the ideal conditions in which we, what we would choose our next Prime Minister, but there we are, that's the situation. But as I say, I think that we are heading for a general election mm. soon anyway. Anthony Selden. Absolutely not. I mean, I, I hope that after we come out of uh, this whole Brexit period in 2089, or or, or perhaps a bit later, uh, that we can have a revivified, I mean, we can hope it will be that early, uh, that we can have a revivified constitution that connects much better with the people in this country. It is completely barking mad to have the selection of the next prime minister chosen by so few people and so unrepresentative. I mean, here we are at this great university 
tonight of Aston, and I met Amna Ratik, who is the NUS, uh, she's the president here, and the energy and the ideas, we are not using the ideas of our young people, and indeed, I would want, as part of this constitutional settlement in reconnecting with the electorate, to get far more of a voice for young people in every single aspect of our country in the future, because we have mucked up the future for our young people, and unless and climate change and so many other things, unless we do involve them much more meaningfully and using the new technologies to uh, do that, then I think we are in big trouble. And you know, I'd even start by having mandatory on any questions. I would have an under 25 person slot every single uh, episode. <laughs> Our, our audience is a self-selecting cross-section of nations. <laughs> How many of our audience um, claim to be 25 or under? Would you put your hands up? <laughs> ah. A significant, not a majority, but a significant proportion supporting that view. I'm sure the BBC will take it very seriously indeed. In fact, the BBC is, wants enormously to attract yeah. young people to programmes like this. Um, mm. So, interesting idea. So... Maybe they will adopt it and say it's the, <laughs> it's the Selden principle. Um, the, the, uh, uh, Paul, the, the, the choosing the Prime Minister with 125,000. Well, happened, of course, didn't it, when at least it wasn't 125,000, it, it was almost coronation when, when, when Tony Blair was succeeded by Gordon Brown. We, we, since 2007, we, we haven't had, we, apart from Cameron, who won one election, we haven't had a Prime Minister who becomes Prime Minister by winning an election, actually winning a majority. Um, but I think it is, it is urgent that the Tories get a new leader uh, because I think while we're all focused on Theresa May today um, and the news has been quite sort of Theresa May oriented, another big thing has happened. The political situation has completely changed. Uh, you know, Theresa May's project was to get a soft Brexit through Parliament without Jeremy Corbyn's votes. Six weeks ago it turned into getting a soft Brexit through Parliament. I don't believe now we will get any kind of soft Brexit. I think the you have to... I may be wrong, but my sense is that the next Tory leader will go for a no deal as a bargaining chip to get a free trade agreement, which is a, a hard Brexit, um, and that the only option for us on the left of politics, on the progressive side, has to be to commit very firmly to remain, and there's, there's not going to be anything in between. There is nothing... I, I wonder whether there will even be, ever be anything on offer to have the second referendum that I want about. You know, the idea was get a, a deal through Parliament, put it to the people. I, don't, I think we could, in 31st of, of October, the, we're going the, to get the, no deal if we're not careful. The, 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 the arithmetic in Parliament doesn't change. The position of politicians may or may not mm. change. It may be that the, the vigour and charisma of a, of a hard Brexit Prime Minister will yeah. uh, uh, patch what was being said uh, just then by Sherelle, uh, could bring people behind him and the Tories. In Labour, which you're familiar with, where the Labour Party, from most people's perspective, has been sitting on the fence mm. in a very incoherent way that has confused those who would normally like to vote Labour, what's going to happen there? I mean, you've, it, it, it's, it's promised on the basis yep. of the, uh, what people were saying before. We don't know the result, obviously. Yep. 
that, that Labour was going to do extremely badly, nearly as badly as the Tories are projected to do. What, what happens? That would be a difficult thing to do, but um, I've been on the doorstep I, uh, for Labour. I'm a Labour uh, member, and, and yes, I've been getting uh, you know, people saying, you know, you, you are sitting on the fence wrongly. And I think, you know, as someone who's often identified as a Corbynist, I'd have to say that, that Corbyn and his team got this, got this wrong. They have a wrong strategy. And, but let's understand where it comes from. It is the desire to live on the same island as 17 million people who voted for Brexit and who are very, very passionate about it. And some of them, not the majority, were our supporters. I think what we got wrong was you know, the, the failure to see that, that everything now is not even about Brexit, it's about values. When you see the, the left politicians in Europe and in the United States, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they speak from the heart about values. And my criticism of, of Labour has been it needs to connect with the values of people who want remain, who want an open and tolerant society. And, and you, of course I want as many possible, as people as possible who voted for Leave to vote for us on that basis but not on the basis of that we try and in some way triangulate with the, the opposite of those views, which, which, which to me are racism, xenophobia, bigotry, misogyny. We, we can't offer anything, uh, really, to people who, sh- who have those views. I want us to become a values-driven party again. Well, we just want... One more thing. Do you see Corbyn? I mean, Corbyn's critics outside the party um, and inside the party, who who are clearly very opposed to him, suggest that he's surrounded by a small coterie of rather Stalinistic characters who are preventing him doing exactly or uh, are endorsing his own urge not to do what you've just suggested. Is that going to... you, You might think that there would be people standing up and saying something very publicly about that. I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see what the, when, when the results happen. I don't think it's just advisers. There are people in the Parliamentary Labour Party who profoundly believe they have a moral duty to deliver Brexit to their constituents. I understand where that comes from. What they've read wrong, and as someone who's taken part in this, we have put poll after poll on the desks of these people showing that what is likely to happen on Sunday night was going to happen, and it was insisted that the polls were always going to be wrong. Well, we'll find out on Sunday night, if, unfortunately, we have lost some voters to the Greens and the Lib Dems, I hope we will be able, to, by changing our strategy, to convince some of them to come back to us. But either way, we want to build an alliance of all progressive people against the real existential threat of a swing to the right in this country, which will make it a very unpleasant place for many people in this room even to be showing their face on the street. I place to you whatever we do on Brexit, the Labour movement will always fight for you and your rights against what is coming. Gina Miller. Can I go back to the question? Um, (laughs) which is uh, about the leadership. And I do think, when I'm talking to politicians yesterday and today and and the last few weeks, because the leadership um, sort of contest started a few weeks ago, Um, you know, the kitchen sinks and the wives and the twerping out everywhere, it it started a while ago. And what I find extraordinary is the conversations in Parliament in Westminster who are desperate in the Parliamentary Conservative Party for a competent leader, but are very worried about what will happen when it goes to their members. And so they are so worried about Farage that they are saying if there is this upsurge to Farage that they can't look at a competent, necessarily, leader. They have to look at someone who is a populist. So the idea that it will be a small coterie of our electorate 
who then has the say in who is our prime minister, is just wrong. But it is only the start of all the reform we need in this country. We need full electoral reform. We need full constitutional reform. And those are the, some of the things that underlay the problems with Brexit. And one of the things that I have found most frustrating for the last three years is that who is talking about the deal they're going to make with the British public? Because everyone's talking about a deal with Europe, and they're talking about a deal within their own parties and amongst themselves. But, you know, you have to look at why 17.4 million people voted to leave and why some of the people who voted for Remain are now very anxious about the fact that we might be going for a public vote. We are not addressing the deal with the British public. We are not addressing our domestic agenda. And the fact that we could end up with a leader that is further to the right and has, as, as Paul says, our common enemy, because it's, an, it's somebody who may well work with Farage and take us to a place where British values and principles and our place in the world is diminished, because we, they do not represent us. And I cannot underestimate enough that when we are talking about someone who says you don't need a manifesto, you don't need policies, that actually young people shouldn't go to universities because that's where they're corrupted and brainwashed, that, you know, you shouldn't have increases in maternity pay. We shouldn't have equality. So, no, no one, I, I, correct me, um, I don't think anyone's put as bleakly or harshly as you have just identified no, no, those, that you shouldn't go to university. No, no, it was, no, Mr. Farage said that the reason why young people voted for Brexit is that universities again, brainwashed you mean them. against Brexit? Voted against Brexit? Yes, yeah. it's yeah. because, against Brexit is because universities brainwashed Yeah, but that's slightly different saying you shouldn't go to university, isn't it? No, 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 I didn't say you said you shouldn't go to university. I thought you did. I said, <laughs> you know, that universities are a place that are brainwashing young people. But we cannot be... And we can't under, underestimate those issues. But the fact is, when you look at politicians who are now fighting... Because there's two leadership... There's two competitions going on. One is for leadership, and the other one is for a place at the table of whoever becomes leader to be in the cabinet... So suddenly there are 18 runners and riders. Um, you know, everybody wants to suddenly be um, up in a race. And uh, you just think, well, if you've got that many trainers and that many runners and riders, have you actually got a really good candidate? And, you know, I, I wonder if we have. Um, but what it means is, you know, what you're seeing playing out is people who are career politicians, who really are there and are thinking, how do I stay in this job? That's not what we should have. We should start looking at things that, you know, time limits and when someone can hold power. Because this is about real people getting into politics so they can connect with real people and understand and empathise and provide solutions okay. for real people. Thank you. We'll... we'll move to our next, please. Richard Broom, if the panel were in number 10, would they nationalise the British steel? <laughs> Nationalisation of British steel, which is the Labour Party uh, policy, um, or public ownership. Um, Scunthorpe plant is going to be liquidated. 5,000 jobs are up in the air at risk uh, directly, and some 20,000 uh, in the supply chain. Sir Anthony Selden. Well... I think that one of the great tragedies of Brexit is that it has lost this country three years when we could have been thinking about really significant, non-self-damaging issues, such as where is the employment going to come from? How are we going to best care for our sick and our mentally unwell? How are we going to best educate our children? And I do, and some people will think this is harsh, if a business 
is not competitive anymore. We can keep pumping money into it, but it would be better in that use of money to put it into ways to restructure and rethink and retrain. That's what our fabulous university system is doing so well, along with our further education colleges, so that we do have a workforce far better attuned to the employments and requirements. So, no, I wouldn't na- nationalise it, but I would do a darn sight better job than happened in the 80s to the co-workers and to other industries, which was heartless. There was one case, can we carry on with these industries which are no longer paying their way? There's another where we failed utterly and totally, immorally, to look after those people and their families and to think how they could play vital and essential roles and respect them as decent people. We didn't do that, and it was terrible. Cheryl Jacobs. So my family's from the West Midlands. My granddad worked at the Bilston Steelworks, which were just up the, up the road, of course. Um, closed in 1980. Um, it destroyed his life. We still, 40 years later, have not learned the lessons. We do not wait decades, 10 years... For 10 years, we've known that British Steel is in trouble with China, competition, rising electricity costs, and we did nothing. And now we're talking about bailing it out or nationalising it when we should have been thinking of solutions. I personally, although I understand some of the ideas that around um, nationalising or bailing it out in the sense that for strategic reasons we might need a steel industry, I actually think that it would be better to spend that money on reskilling people, looking at alternative industries. For example, you know, with Scunthorpe next door is just Hull with the fantastic wind power uh, energy sector, and perhaps Scunthorpe needs to think about that. Um, but no, I don't think that it should be bailed out. I really think that we need to break this vicious cycle of doing nothing for years on end and then suddenly panicking when thousands of people are at risk of losing their jobs. And it's just a tragedy that we are repeating historic errors over and over again, and it is costing people their lives, their livelihoods. It's ruining lives. The, the government, incidentally, the business secretary, says that it's unlawful he's been advised to provide, as he puts it, a guarantee or a loan on the terms of any proposals made by the company or any party. Um, uh, uh, Paul, Paul, Paul Mason. Well, I, I, I would nationalise it. Nobody's talking about bailing it out because it would, in this sense, be Grable Capital who owns the, the, the business. They bought it for a pound. They've stripped some of the assets, it seems to me. They've made a good money out of it. We don't want to pump money into their business. Uh, we need to save the, the operation at Scunthorpe. And before we go into the economics, let me just say, when I covered... When last time it was under threat, I went to Scunthorpe and reported. And what struck me, I'm from the north of England. I come from a place called Lee, which is in Wigan. And I know the north of England really well. And I was shocked by how prosperous Sunderland was compared to almost everywhere else I could think of nearby. This is a town with a lot of independent shops, butchers, grocers, the kind that disappear when you know, the, the deindustrialization takes place. So for the, for the sake of the people alone, given that we're going to need a steel industry, I would certainly nationalise it. I would then look at looking at whether or not there are forms of mutual ownership, new forms of non-private ownership for this, for this thing in the, in the mid-term. The other thing is the reason it's going bust is because it can't pay its climate uh, levy. 
So that also tells you that if you want a steel industry, you're going to have to do something more drastic than simply impose charges on steel um, for, to, to meet climate change. I mean, ultimately, the, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury chaired or took part in a big panel okay, for the IPPR think tank this last year. They called for the, re, the smart reindustrialization of Britain. Here at Aston, you have AI, you have automotive, you, have, you, you are servicing what is left your engineering department and sciences are servicing what is left of, 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 of business, of industry, JLR, for example. We need ten times more of that. We could have it in this country if we had an industrial strategy. And if you're going to reindustrialize Britain and you've only got two blast furnace-based steelworks left, don't lose one of them. Above all... If you, want to, if you want to do things like Jeremy Hunt wants to do, double defence spending. Maybe some of that steel could be used to make things out of metal that fight people. Though I don't want us to take part in any wars, if the Tories have this idea of doubling defence spending, they might need the odd steelworks. Paul, should you, in your view, if there is a cost that is persistently uh, negative because the, it, you can't produce the steel uh, profitably... For the purposes of argument, would you still do that because of the impact on the nation and on people's livelihoods? I would, because the, first of all, it, you know, a nationalised industry it, it is there to, as it were, underwrite the costs of other private industries that ne- that need the, the basic good. But on top of this, let's remember the EU. For all its, you know, everybody slags off the EU. It has belatedly imposed tariffs on China to keep the cheap subsidised steel, which we are not allowed to do by law. They are because they are the law. The party is the law in China. We, we need to put higher tariffs on Chinese steel. No, that's not protectionism, or rather it is. It's the protection of a community that is today full of people who have decent jobs and more, more community than they would have than my town, which was stripped of every industry, where the biggest problems are domestic violence, zero-hours contract, and rock-bottom pay, which okay. are sapping the energy of society itself. Thank so you. That's, the, that's the public good that we're after, not simply you know, steel, balancing the books of a steelworks. Gina, Gina Miller. I think you do have to balance the uh, profit against, uh, versus people because actually both matter. And when you have, we haven't learned, I think that's true, we haven't learned that short-term policy making doesn't work. And that's what happens when we change governments every three to five years. Nobody actually looks at the long term. And if we started looking at more 10-year-plus policy making that looked at infrastructure investing, that actually looked at a um, at looked at industrial strategy, which, as we said, doesn't have. I mean, we talk about China, who've produced more steel in two years than we have done in 20 um, and it's subsidised by their government, as Paul says. But they have a plan till 2050, mm. you know, as a country. We just don't plan like that. And we haven't learned that when a, an industry isn't working, you have to have what's called a transition plan. So you transition the community, you transition the workers, you transition the profits, you transition into other industries, and you actually look at which bits of that business works or that sector works, and where can you then transition those workers into another area that might be more forward-thinking in technology, in development, in research. And we just don't have that sort of creative thinking where we are forward-looking into how is it that we sustain communities? Because 25,000 jobs... Think of those families. Think of those children of those families. 
It is a disgrace that this has not been looked at before. And it won't be the last time. Gina, because we don't look at these things with a long-term lens. You are, taking that into account, you're an investment manager yes. by, by profession. Could you get private investment of a kind that is serious quality money, as it were, to go into something like the plant at Scunthorpe in the context in which you've just outlined it, where well, we have yes, a new you vision? Can. Yes, you can, because there are more and more businesses now who are looking at it from a triple bottom line, and that's where we've got to get to. This idea that private equity comes in and asset strips is something that we have got to be in control of, because that's basically what too many companies come in and do, because they made a good profit, and now their next buyer that's coming along, Greg Clark has announced today that he's going to, they're going to give them, you know, bribe them with $120 million for the carbon uh, that they have to pay, that bill against carbon emissions. But that's still not going to make the business profitable, and that is the problem, is balancing. I do think that uh, an aggressive uh, pursuit of profit does not benefit a community. And I do think that we need to start thinking about that. And responsible capitalism is one thing I'm very passionate about. Uh, Richard Brome. <laughs> Would you nationalise? I think the government should take either a large stake in the industry or nationalise it. It is strategically important to the country and the people up there in Scunthorpe, they, they need that industry. Thank you. Um, again, the, any answers number 03700 100 444. Our next, please. Uh, Edward Robinson. Does the University of Today prepare, prepare our students adequately for the technology-dominated <laughs> world of tomorrow? We, we sort of touched on this once or twice in the programme um, so far. Uh, Anthony. Edward, I think we have a fantastic university sector in Britain. It is one of the complete jewels of this country. It is doing amazing things in terms of research, in terms of the economy, community, culture, bringing people together, and social mobility, wonderful opportunities, doubled opportunities for our black students from those from lesser-advantaged backgrounds... One thing that we all need to do much better is to recognise that there is a revolution, the 4.0, the AI revolution, which is coming very fast towards us. We are kind of on top of it in terms of transport and agriculture and, and, and medicine and retail, but we are nowhere close to understanding how it could either infantilise or liberate uh, not just young people in this country, but over the whole world. Infantilised? Infantilised, because think of the, uh, the taxi drivers who no longer, um, who used to spend years learning the knowledge and took great pride in their knowledge, but now their knowledge is worthless because the AI machine will know always much better than them what's happening on the junction after next. And, and we need, that goes back to the steel story. I'm sorry, but we need to be thinking much more long term, which is why I think you're wrong about steel. We need to care for those communities, but we need to drastically re-skill them and rethink. And in Jeremy Hayward, the great civil servant this country lost, he was always talking about thinking much more longer term 
for this country. This is a revolution. This is as serious, as big a deal for this country as global warming. I think it's more serious than global warming, the coming AI revolution. But the thing about it is is that it could be a wonderful thing in terms of social advantage, in terms of giving people riches in education and culture and contact with each other that they have never known before, but we are nowhere near getting on top of it. So we have a fantastic uh, University Edward uh, system here, few uh, better than uh, Aston itself doing such great work with its... uh, uh, job placements and its, uh, its diversity programs, but we need everywhere in this country to think what is happening. We are asleep, totally asleep to what's happening. Sherelle Jacobs. I think that the future belongs to whoever wins the tech arms race. We're looking at competing with the likes of China and so on. But I think we've got a serious cultural problem in this country. Um, I think it kind of goes back to the Industrial Revolution and this kind of snobbery that making things an invention is somehow dirty work. And you kind of see that passing through now to people's attitudes to tech, thinking it's the preserve of geeks and slightly peculiar people with no communication skills. And also we have a problem also with girls not wanting to get into tech as well. There's a slightly um, different kind of challenge there. But I think that we are going to have to drastically reassess the way that we see learning, um, the way that we see scholarly endeavour. It's not just about reading books and being clever. Um, So, yeah, I think we've got one heck of a challenge on our hands. Gina Miller. I think by the time you get to university, it's too late, actually. I think we need to start redoing, looking at our entire educational system. Because if you look abroad at where we are on the, on the global scale, we're not doing well. We're about number 19, I think it is, on the scale globally. Um, and, and, you know, we don't have a great record also when it comes to resilience and mental health by the time students get to mm-hmm. a university level. So we have quite a, few, quite a few issues. But when it comes specifically to universities, I think we do need to start thinking and really looking carefully at um, cross-disciplinary courses. Because say, for example, as we're talking about um, technology, so you're talking about coders of the future. Should they be reading and philosophy as well and ethics? Because if they're going to be the ones who are coding for the future and coding and putting in biases, which we know AI has because of the data that goes in, then are they going to be coding for chaos? Are they going to be coding with a conscience? And these are the sorts of things we need to start thinking about. Is there a need for real cross-disciplinary thinking, so real future thinking about how we actually get our young people from the age of Do they go to school at four? Do they go to school at six because they're going to be working so much longer? Why is it that they're even going to school? Why are they leaving school at 16? Should that be changed? We need to basically shake up every part of our educational system. And can I just say one other thing, to come back to the B word, that all the universities are going to be hit very hard. All the universities I speak to are very, very worried about losing their research grants. You know, the fact is that from just between 2007 and 2013, the grants alone from the EU were actually 260 million. And that was research in food, technology, (coughs) climate. You know, the universities are very, very concerned about this. Thank you. Um... The technology domination world of tomorrow, Edward Robinson asks, are students being adequately 
adequately prepared for this. Paul Mason. Well, in one way, yes, if you look at STEM in, in, in secondary schools, although, I, like Gina, I, I would want every secondary school to be able to offer further maths to somebody who wants to be able to do it. Um, my experience is, is patchy on that. Then at university, I think the next piece of it is that, yes, when we're talking about, just if you're talking about building a bridge or redesigning a combustion engine, the ethical principles and the legal issues are, are containable, as in sort of medicine development. With artificial intelligence, robotics and automation, first of all, they are, they are open questions. And, and I think the university that cracks the idea of a kind of virtual faculty that, in, that brings the lawyers in, that brings the moral philosophers in. This is what my book's about, the moral philosophy of, 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 of we need in an age of AI. That's the university that's going to almost like reinvent the lyceum of ancient Athens that, that gives students a, a view of what this tech is going to be used for and, and also that teaches them to build ethicality into it. But while you're doing that, and while you're trying to adjust it to hopefully what we get, an industrial policy that provides access to capital, direction about where we want this stuff, you still have to be thinking about this stuff could create a very low work society. And if it does, and I think it will, you know, our utopias based on work won't make any sense. And so I would like to see the university preparing people for high cultural production and high cultural consumption at the same time. And maybe some of the engineers would do some of that as well. Um, and I think it's, okay. it's that. The, the idea of envisaging the low work society isn't really there in your highly sort of vocationally focused university right now. Just a quick word there. Gina, Gina mentioned schools, and I spent most of my life and immensely proud to have been a school teacher and uh, thinking of the one million school teachers here in this country, our work has been rendered much less because of the narrowing and narrowing focus down to exams as the whole validator of the yes, worth yes. of an individual, the worth of a school, the worth of a teacher. You know... We have, despite all that, we have a pretty good education system in Britain, a pretty good education system for the 20th century. (laughs) You've all been talking quite radical terms, not in political radical terms, but partly political, but radical change about Mm. that's required if we are to do this. In the world, the tired old world in which so many feel themselves to live, that change requires, does it not the juggernaut to be adapted, changed... The Japanese have done it. They've tripled rob- uh, smart robot output and, and they're in in con- since we voted for Brexit. We, what have we done? And can you... And can you uh, it, 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 is there a danger that if you allow the robotics and AI to take over, you become sort of... You, you talked about infantilisation. Uh, do you get to a situation where, where actually democracy, if you're not careful, ceases to matter because they do everything and... You have a very small number of people who can run the show perfectly effectively, as in China. There is a danger, yes, Jonathan. We need to be more awake to it than we are. I think we not only do we, we need to be awake to that, but we also need to be awake to the other ripple effects of it, which is, for example, taxation. Who is going to be paying the tax if we have, for every 75 jobs, one job? And the fact is that this is not going to hit just the low-skilled workers. It's also going to be professionals. You know, there are lawyers now who are being out, put out of work because computers can actually find a resolution to a contract Tragedy. in three minutes. <laughs> well, no, no, but it's just an example. But the middle, you know, the professions that are going to universities are going to be hit by this AI revolution. 
Talking about three minutes, we've got three seconds. Um, in fact, we've come to the end of this week's programme. Um, next week, we're going to be in Tring. Um, panel will be terrific. Um, can't name them yet. We live in uncertain times. Interesting times, as they say. Uh, don't get any answers. Julian Warwicker will be there. 03 700 100 444. Uh, for now, from this wonderful student union building in this university has been so eloquently described by our panel. Goodbye. Did you enjoy the podcast? Discover more music, radio and podcasts on BBC Sounds.